Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you for sticking out the tough weather to get here and surviving the day. Uh, this is our second to last panel segment here in Shane Battier room at the 2023 Sloan Sports and Analytics Conference. I'm Max Williams, first year MBA student here at MIT Sloan, and I am super pumped to be, uh, to be welcoming you to this hockey panel. We have hard cap constraints, roster construction in the hard cap era of the NHL. Uh, we have an incredible panel and an incredible moderator. We have Kate Madigan with us, who's the assistant GM of the New Jersey Devils. We have Brett Peterson, assistant GM of the Florida Panthers. We have Megan Chaika, who's the co-founder and CEO of Staffleets. And then we have Dominic Moore, who'll be our moderator, former NHL player, current NHL analyst on ESPN. So um, timing of the trade deadline, winding down the season to the Stanley Cup run, I don't think we could have timed this one any better. So it should be a good one. If you have questions for our panelists, our moderator, uh, please submit them via Twitter at that hashtag, HockeyHardCap. Uh, I'll be moderating over there, and you know, we'll do about 45 minutes up here. Last 10, 15 minutes or so will be for uh, audience Q&A. And uh, with that, Dominic, it's all you. All right, thank you, Max. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, really excited for what should be a really fascinating talk here. We, uh, I'd like to thank our panelists, a busy, busy week. <laughs> Uh, so it really means a lot for, for everyone to, to join us here. Um, about 20 minutes ago, just down the road, uh, the Bruins and the Rangers faced off. Um, I thought you know, they would be potentially a good entry point for our discussion about roster construction. These are two teams right now that are you know, at the top, uh, near the top of everyone's list for cup contention. Um, they're also two teams that had very different stories in terms of how they've been built. Bruins have been contenders for the better part of 13 years uh, since they won the Cup in 2011, two finals. The Rangers reached the final 2014, President's Trophy the year after that, conference finals, but then went into a deep rebuild. So this question of roster construction, the philosophies, you know, the dynamics that underlie them, I thought that might be a good opening you know, discussion for each of you to share kind of what your thoughts are. And Megan, I guess we'll start with you. Sure, maybe this is too simplistic, but essentially you do have picks, prospects, rosters, and then cap that you can weaponize to, you know, create this environment for your team that's optimal, not only for, you know, now, but obviously winning the Stanley Cup. That's what you want to achieve. And so there's no like one way, clearly, to do it, but there's clearly like better paths forward. And I think looking at it too, you realize that, some do have to be drafted and developed and like can be very expensive later on. So like look at someone like Tage Thompson that people kind of gave up on. Like there's certain types of players, even defensively, you know, that you have to look, I see some Buffalo fans in the crowd. <laughs> I had to give Tage a shout out. But there's certain, you know, players that you can't just say, hey, let's pick them up for, you know, $12 million down the road. In a hard cap um, era, you don't have that ability to do too many of that. So you see some of the teams that are stuck with some of these big contracts, either they can't move them or they also don't have space to then acquire these other pieces that they need to make that run. So there's a fine balance where you have to think hard cap is great and has like advantages, of course, in business, but like for the game and for salaries, is it like the best way for hockey forward too? Mm -hmm. Brett, do you have anything to build off that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in today's NHL, especially you have to, establish a way to retain talent too 
and you have you know your elite players and I think both clubs that you have mentioned have done an excellent job of creating a sense of uh, identity and culture within their their organizations and and they've been able to get their core and top players to buy in and I think that that has really helped them because then they can they have a, a good building block and then they, they begin to build around that and uh, you know special players can do special things for sure Kate we we I've talked before about you know the two different philosophies, but what are some of the underlying factors that maybe lead a team to say, you know what, now's the time we really need to, you know, there's two teams right now that you'd say they've been hanging on, you know, if it's Pittsburgh or Washington that they've got aging superstars. What are some of these, you know, underlying factors that drive decisions, whether to rebuild or hang on there? Yeah, I think with Boston and the Rangers, they're both working, right? So there are different ways to do it. I think you have to be honest with yourself when you're looking. It depends on when you're at that point of contention, what your cupboards look like, what players you have. For me, the biggest thing is when you create your plan to be disciplined to it, it's very easy to have external pressure to change, to go after a certain player, give up certain picks. If you're disciplined, which I think both of these teams have, that's what really helps them get to where they wanna be. We were in a similar position with the New Jersey Devils a couple of years ago. Um, a rebuild, I like to say retool, it sounds nicer, a um, <laughs> little softer. But for us, you need to be honest and you need to make hard decisions. And I think both of these teams and their general managers and their groups did that and, and that's where they're at now. You know, I want, I want to talk about the Devils. Um, you guys came on a lot stronger this year than people expected. Um, I think we could see it developing. You see that, you know, the discipline, you guys sticking to the plan, but I think surprised a lot of people this year and maybe even yourselves. What have you learned? You know, I know you made some key moves in the offseason that probably changed the projection, but were there other things that maybe surprised you, other things you might have learned in the process that amplified where you were last year to this year? Yeah, I think pressure is a privilege. So there is more, there's higher expectations for the Devils now, which is great. Um, I didn't expect to go and win 13 games in a row. That was certainly fun. Um, so we'll take those wins when you get them. But it, it, there's a lots of highs and lows throughout the season, you guys know. For us, I think we had some acquisitions in the off seasons and it needs to fit what your team is doing. So sometimes it does happen to be the best player, but it also needs to be the best player for you. I think a lot of times there's weight as there should be on points, goals, things like that. What we found is there's also weight in the intangibles. So the culture for us was huge. Leadership, veterans, um, players with experience. Two years ago, we were the youngest team in the league. So if we wanna go into a postseason push, playoffs is a totally different level of hockey. So having guys who have done that and be ready for it. So I think some of those intangibles has what's progressed us to what maybe the expectations were at the beginning of the year, but we also, as you, as you continue to exceed, your expectations rise. So what we expect from our staff and our players is a lot higher than it was at the beginning of the year mm -hmm. because some of those intangibles. You know, speaking of expectations rising, Brett, you guys win the President's Trophy <laughs> last year and you bow out to the Lightning in the playoffs. And with the expectations where they are, you guys go out and make some pretty gutsy decisions. Um, change, you know, changing some of your best players, uh, bringing in some new faces, changing the coach. Um, can you share, what can you share about some of the thought that went into that? You know, right now you guys are in the hunt, uh, but not a sure thing that, that you'll be a playoff team this year. 
Well, I think, you know, when you go through a season, you, you always, uh, teams have to reevaluate where you're at and, and where you're going and, and what your plan is and your, both your short-term and your long-term goals. And, you know, sometimes you have to give something to get something. Um, I think in, in all situations around the league, from a, from a managerial standpoint, you're, you're always looking at the tan, what your tandem is and, and how is your team fit within your plan and how quickly can you get there. And um, we felt that we had a situation where um, it's a special player. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think with our, with our vision and, and putting that across with a learning the last couple years, uh, playing an unbelievable team like the Tampa Bay Lightning who has gone through it for eight, nine years, um, you know, that's, that's the standard. And, um, you know, hard decisions are, have to be made all the time, and, and that was uh, certainly not an easy one, but we're, we're happy that we made it. Well, one of the things that comes to mind actually for me is if you look at the New York Rangers, uh, the 92 Rangers, they, they won the President's Trophy but bowed out early in the playoffs. They made significant changes. The next year, they, they actually didn't make the playoffs. But what happened the year after that? They won the President's Trophy and won the Cup. So hopefully, there's good things in store for you guys as well. <laughs> we'll take it. <laughs> uh, Megan, trade deadline yes. yesterday. Um, I was not here. <laughs> I, I don't think I can recall a more aggressive, uh, you know, exciting trade deadline as there was, to, you know, the weeks leading up to this year. I mean, it was bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was like over 40 trades made, which hasn't, you know, happened for a long time, right? And it's been hard. Part of the problem with that hard cap is it's like, you know, sometimes you even need that third team then to take on some of the, the salary, you take that salary to make that move. So there's some difficult calls, but teams obviously started early this year. I mean, there's a lot of inventory, mm -hmm. people at the top that wanted, needed to get better. That Metro division is nasty now. I mean, you have the Rangers, the Devils, Carolina. You know, they even made some moves and you're like, did you need to? You know, Boston made some moves. Did they need to? Were they just any, got better. Were there any trends that you saw particular with this year's trade line, line strategy-wise, either with the contending teams, which you started to mention, or even some of the non-playoff teams, what they were trying to do? Yeah, there's obviously people preparing for the future, but I'd say those, like, first and second rounders aren't going for, like, the price that they were previously, and there's a lot of pressure on some of these teams, whether it's a Boston feeling like, hey, we're still in our window, mm -hmm. like, let's go for it. Or like the Leafs to shake up, hey, we're probably going to see Tampa and we have to do something that's different, right? To get past that, um, you know, core that's just so strong, Stamkos, Vasilevsky. Now you have Shesterkin and the Rangers and them bringing in a couple, you know, very elite scorer in Tarasenko or, and a, then an elite playmaker in Kane. I know we laughed before about there's only one puck, but anytime you're getting better, I think, in terms of making some of those moves to win in the playoffs, it's interesting. Because mm -hmm. clearly the President's Trophy winner, you know, rarely wins the Stanley Cup. It's a different style of hockey. You're playing this series where you're actually matching up and, you know, you win and compete differently. So a lot of motivated teams this year, but it made for great TV too. It did. A lot of motivated teams almost seemed like they all felt the apocalypse was coming <laughs> and they better win the cup now. Um, Kate, you guys, you guys were one of the teams that made a big move, acquiring Timo Meyer. Um, is there anything you can share about what made him a great fit, how you guys uh, decided to make an investment like that in a player like him? 
Yeah, won't give away too much. <laughs> but for us, I think there's a difference too when you're a buyer or seller. How things come about is you generally know through November, December where teams are at um, and names start coming about. So Timo Meyer was someone that we had on our target. I think everyone did for, for a while. He's um, anytime you can have the three S's, speed, skating, skill in one player, it's awesome. Uh, so for us to acquire him was a no-brainer. When we think through decisions, there's a thousand things that come into play. Injuries, pro scouting, does he fit the salary cap, culture, analytics, all these things. And this is one of the players where they all matched up, which doesn't happen often. So it's like, okay, this is a pretty easy sell. Uh, now let's see what it's gonna cost, cost us, acquisition price. So for us, it was someone that we had uh, we knew that we've wanted a scoring winger as well. We had other acquisitions in the offseason in our defense, so this was something that we knew for the past six, nine months we were going to try and acquire. Uh, his name obviously fit the category, and we went from there. And then um, it's a grueling process going through trades. Brett knows as well as um, we'll give you this, uh, we'll give you this. I don't want to give that. Well, what about this and this? I don't like that either. Um, <laughs> and you go back and forth for a while. Sometimes it's days, sometimes it's weeks. Uh, I don't think I've ever been in a month long one, but it, it is a process. So for us, it was late Sunday night, like 10.30, you're in the office and you're grinded down and you make the trade and you're like, whew, okay. Like you, you can sleep a little lighter that night. So for us to get him was pretty spectacular and he'll play for us here soon. Um, and we're excited to see see what I'll do. And then there's the question of who does he play with, right? You, you got to find that out, figure that out. Um, we have had a strong season, so you don't want to shake things up too much line-wise, but I'm excited to see him. Um, and he's got a little jam, so we needed that as well. <laughs> Can't have enough jam. Can never have enough. Uh, you know, one of the trends I think I noticed was just some of these moves that didn't just have a short time horizon. You know, Meyer's probably a good example. Uh, another one that comes to mind for me is Tanner Jeannot going to Tampa. I mean, he's, this is a guy that's 25 years old. So this is a move that will help them now, but also help them in the future. But also, you know, they had to invest more for that. Um, you know, time will tell to see how these things play out, as, as you mentioned. Brett, uh, along those lines, um, one of the, I think, tougher decisions that organizations need to make these days is that call about investing in the young stars early you know, to, to, in hopes to keep their cap number down uh, for a long term. But, you know, you're also making that decision a lot earlier than in, in past eras where you have a more limited body of work. Is there anything that you can share about the process of how you evaluate, project, and ultimately decide what you're willing to invest uh, in those kinds of players, those kinds of decisions? Yeah, well, you know, I sat on both sides of this table. I was an agent for 15 years and as an agent, you want to get them right out of that entry-level system as quickly as you can because that's where you get paid, right? So whatever you got to do, get in here, get out, let's, let's get paid. And, and uh, it's actually pretty interesting because as an agent, you're, you're like, you guys got all the money in the world. You know what I mean? And uh, now flipping the side and you go to the managerial side, um, you have your recipe and you have to assess what, uh, you know, what asset is worth, player is worth, what, where your team is at at that particular moment. And, you know, again, what's your long-term goal? And, um, you know, we have, uh, it's, a, it's a process that goes through, and I, I speak for most teams, scouting and analytics and assessing what something's worth and what you're willing to pay for it. And if you can get into that sweet spot and find a, a good fit for, for your club and in your cap and, 
everybody nowadays in the hard cap area, you have to be always uh, mindful of, of what the implications could be. So, um, you know, I think everyone's looking for a deal and, and if you can find the right players and it fits your, your club and your vision, then you, then you go ahead and make it. You know, Megan, Stathletes, your company, it, it, it tracks data all over the world, all, all leagues, all levels, men's hockey, women's hockey. Um, what are some of the areas that you've seen in terms of areas of attention that are growing or, or things that your customers are coming to you and saying, you know what, we're paying more attention to this, please give us this. Like, what are some trends you've seen in that regard? That's a good one. I think one is like leveraging the AHL team and system and understanding so much more about player development, also using that in their cap too, right? If they have a close AHL team that they can move players up and down more seamlessly, right? They're not jumping on a flight and mad that they're going halfway across the country. It just gives them more flexibility, but it also allows them to have that longer window where they can invest in their players, they're bought in, they possibly want to sign more long-term, and then getting those deals structured that make more sense. So you see the big market teams now, big bonuses, front-ended, so that they can possibly trade the contract if they need to, and it's more valuable in, in that way to get more return for it because you know, you're not paying a huge salary for a player that's really mark-to-market under that salary and performance. Mm -hmm. For sure. You know, we've been talking about cap management, finding value, um, you know, some of the player evaluation metrics, things like that. What are, we'll go back to Kate, I guess, to start with this, but I want each of you to weigh in on this. What are some of the things that maybe not as easily measured um, that you're trying to build in? You know, we're all data, you know, data-driven decision-making now. You know, your organizations are built that way. How do you find that balance in terms of incorporating these intangibles uh, but also continuing to be disciplined to a data-driven framework. Yeah, a little bit of what I talked about before, what we evaluated uh, over the summer, some of those intangibles, the leadership, um, hard to play against is one, right? You can measure it in some ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, the culture they bring, the, all those intangibles that the metrics, for us, it's, it's all a piece of the puzzle. So if you already have an extremely vocal group, I mean, you can never have enough leadership, but maybe that's not something that you're focusing on as much. If you already have a penalty killer, like it's all kind of things like that. So for us, you have to, you have a checklist of things you want, whether it's a face-off guy, penalty killer, score, leadership, hard to play against, physical, you have all these things. And when you go and look through your group, you see what you already have versus what you're lacking. So when it is free agency and there's three or four guys up there and you're like, okay, well, who has these boxes that we haven't checked? Uh, some of those intangibles are hard to measure. Um, that's where relationship building is huge, whether it's talking with other teams that maybe have had them, um, pro scouts, coaches, ex-players, current players, things like that. So it's so hard, but it is a fine balance. But if you create your framework of what you want your team and identity, every team identity is different, then it makes it a little bit easier. Brett? Yeah, I think, um, you know, hockey is such an interesting sport because I think, you, as you said, the intangibles are, are on display um, a little bit more um, apparent in our sport. You, when you look at the, the teams that have won the Stanley Cup, you, you know, Tampa comes out to mind, Boston comes out to mind. You know, they have these core pieces of leadership winners, um, uh, you know, the second, the third efforts, and, and, and you, you put that in tandem with, you know, all your analytical research about what a player does in, in terms of conditioning, his, um, um, you know, what his points are, where he scores from, 
all the, all those things, and you, you put together a recipe, but at the end of the day, what we have in hockey is, is something really special where you have hockey players that will put themselves at jeopardy um, in search of their team. And I think that is um, a big piece of, of, of when you're searching for these players and, and building a team is, is creating that culture and creating that leadership and, and finding winners. Mm -hmm. For sure. Megan. I'll also loop in like the coaching element too, because although, you know, it seems like it's a revolving door, each team kind of trades around coaches. You have a team like Carolina with Rob Brendamore, and they're just very hard to play against. They're very good defensively. They seem to have a lot of structure, and you know that they're shooting a lot. They have the most shot attempts in the league, and they have great like rebound recovery because they're like expecting it. So they all play as this one system that game over game, night after night, they're really hard to defeat. And I feel like, you know, with that coaching element to have people be very aware of, like, not only style of play, but what they should contribute to end, in, you know, more goals versus less goals, expected goals, and in terms of, like, just quality play. You know, Carolina and what Brendan Moore has done in terms of that coaching element, that leadership element, feels like they can kind of trade anyone into that system, and they seem to, like, do better. And, you know, they got a, a player from Edmonton who... I feel like uh, a lot of the media and fans weren't, you know, kind of had turned against them, but he'll probably do well in Carolina, to be honest. You know, this question of coaching is an interesting one. You know, you think about another example, Bruce Cassidy, a lot of success here in Boston. Mm -hmm. he, he, he goes to Vegas. They have success too. <laughs> yes. But lo and behold, the Bruins have this historic season. Um, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, obviously, um, but it's about finding that balance, finding that chemistry with what you need. Uh, you know, you guys all touched on it. Kate, I want to go back to you, back to the kind of rebuild question. And one of the things I want to touch on um, and hear from your perspective is about this issue of timing. And you guys, you know, you, you draft Jack Hughes, um, you, you, you have an idea in mind of, you know, what that development trajectory is going to look like. But in the, in the meantime, you have to make some pretty difficult decisions um, in the next few years. What goes into those decisions in, in, when it comes to this idea of timing in terms of that, that window, that, that target you guys are trying to build? Is there anything you can share on that front? Yeah, so for us, it's how we kind of think about it is who are our core pillar players. So one being Jack Hughes. Another could be... Nico Heischer, Dougie Hamilton on defense. And it's kind of creating a vision around who those players are and their timelines. So for us, I actually see it like our timeline, we probably did exceed expectations this year, but it's just starting. Our biggest thing is sustained success. So we want to be in it, yes, this year, next year, but we're not willing to give up the farm just to be in it this year, just to make a push. We want to be in the same spot in eight, nine years. There are teams that do that. Like, look at Pitt for so long being in the playoffs year in, year out. And so for us, it's, it's all about being disciplined, as I said before, to the timelines, but it's making sure they're aligned and there's only so much money that can go around, right? So you do have to draft well. So you have some of those cheaper contracts on their entry-level deals. And so for us, we know Jack, Nico, Dougie, their contracts are aligned in a sense of our time frame that our next few years are when we do need to strike. So it may not technically be this year right now, but this to me is the start of the window. Um, but alignment's huge, and that's where you need to develop well, draft well, because you need those players coming up. If, if you do give out high-end value contracts, you need some of those third, fourth-line grinders who can come up um, that may be a little lesser value, but 
you've drafted them, you hold the rights, so you have that opportunity to, to have them in your lineup. So for us, it's, it's really going around our core players, and we determined that probably two or three years ago when Tom Fitzgerald took over and the blueprint and strategy he had, and we've kind of stuck through since. And Brett, where does this issue of timing weigh in your priority list uh, with the Panthers? Like, uh, how, you know, how weighted is it, in other words, and all the, the decisions that you guys have to make on a year-to-year -year basis? Well, I think, you know, again, I think every team has got to assess you know, where your players are at, what what their age is, what value they have, and 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 you know, and move your chips around the board accordingly. Um, you know, we. Uh, when you look at the teams that are consistently at the top, they do such a great job retooling on the fly and re rebuilding and, and re-inserting into the cupboards. And I think that's where the NHL is now. If you look at the Eastern Conference in, in particular, I mean, it's it's scary. Um, and every game is 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 a battle. And um, you know, I sure wouldn't want to see a Panther in the rearview mirror, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been fun. So I think, you know, when you're looking at all of these, of these, uh, of these uh, assets that you have and in the, in the games that you have uh, to play, you have to always be in mind of what, where can you be and how, how good can you get, how quickly can you be there? Megan, it seems like in this, in this cap era, it, it's harder than ever to, you know, to build a dynasty because mm -hmm. once you have success, uh, it's become so difficult to keep your players. Uh, we're seeing, you know, Chicago paying now for, for the three cups that they were able to achieve. Um, you know, it's just hard to keep things together. I think that's the nice thing about the hard cap is there is a sense of parity, right? You do have those teams that sort of ebb and flow president's trophy out of the playoffs. You have some shuffling, but then there's some luck, like more luck in hockey, right? If you're the Mets, you just go out and have great scouting, have a lot of resources and buy a lot of players. But, you know, you can't do that in the NHL. So there's that one sense of like these very incremental, sure, you can be smart and whatever, but if you have that puck that bounces and, you know, you lose in, in overtime, that's, that's that. Your season's over. So I think... It's great in terms of like fans being engaged, every market feeling like they have a spot. It's bad in that, yeah, that lottery ball, whoever gets Bedard maybe keeps their job a little bit longer. <laughs> or like, you know, player salaries. It's like Phil Mickelson makes what? And Connor McDavid makes what? <laughs> you know, like how does that make sense? Like he may be one of the most dominant players in all sports right now. And he's, you know, paid like a, whatever, a golfer that doesn't even make a cut. <laughs> so it, that's a problem but I'll take Connor McDavid's salary well I, I, I think we're all witnessing uh, historic greatness that's for sure and we've, we've also been witnessing you know historic levels of offense across the board it, we're, we're seeing players have career years more than we ever have before it's an exciting brand of hockey that we're all fortunate to watch and this playoffs is shaping up uh, to be unforgettable. Uh, Brett, I want to come back to you. You mentioned this idea of retooling on the fly. And the Panthers have had an uncanny knack for finding basically players from the discard pile <laughs> of other teams and turning them into core pieces. Um, you know, right off the top, you've got Verhage. Uh, Duclair bounced around quite a bit before finding a home there. Forsling was on waivers. 
Sam Bennett was playing on the fourth line in Calgary. It's been really, really important for you guys. Uh, I know there's only so much you can share in terms of what goes into evaluating those players and you know finding those diamonds in the rough, but what I wanted to ask in particular was, is there something about the deployment side, um, you know, the side where you're putting these guys in a position to succeed, uh, you know, an approach there that stands out for you guys? Well, I mean, I think 85 degrees every day helps. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's... it's um, I wouldn't say, we've done a, a really nice job of identifying underappreciated players. And um, that's our analytics department, that's, you know, we've created a way to have uh, traditional scouting and, you know, present day um, technology come together and, and, and find a recipe that we think works. And I think that's no different than most teams. Um, we, we don't, um, I would say that most teams, players, need opportunity and um and if you can create that and and um you know foster that then then they might be able to do something um that people don't expect you know montour is another guy that comes to mind the opportunity uh, presents itself this year he steps right into a bigger role and performs it, it's been remarkable what you guys have achieved on that front um megan back to this whole roster construction thing is there any trends you've observed in terms of strategies the last couple of years. One of the questions, you know, perhaps is how teams are deciding to deploy capital by position. Um, you know, how much are they investing in defense versus goalies versus forwards? Obviously, we're seeing this, you know, trend league-wide where, you know, the core superstars are eating up a ton of that cap room. What comes to mind in terms of larger trends uh, you know, strategically there? Well, I definitely think structuring those deals, like I was saying, those big market teams that are paying those big bonuses and then not having to, you know, have the salaries structured away so that they're immovable, I think is really smart. Um, clearly, you know, goalies are like a number one actual league goalie in the NHL. Like you can almost count them on your hands. And the same goalie that is year over year and that goals above expected is, you know, very few. It's not necessarily repeatable of like understanding, okay, this goalie is going to perform. So, you know, that's tough in the playoffs because you always need that goalie checklist, right, when you have that really tough hockey that's like the one-goal games. So I think that there's elements for sure that, you know, people are, obviously it's a copycat league in a way, look at what works, what's, you know, going, I don't want to say LTIR, but I think that's what everyone's thinking as well, right? There's ways to weaponize the cap to ramp up um, in the playoffs as well. So, yeah, there's no, like, one way to do it. And I think it all depends on, you know, who's available, who wants to come to your market. So some markets that are smaller markets struggle, too. And they have to find who will want to play there, who comes there. Uh, doesn't have, and I know Patrick Kane was, you know, had his eye on New York. So even if you're in the game to get him and you were one of those top 10 teams, you weren't going to get him. So there's other constraints that I think are a bit unknown. And you just have to do the best you can as a GM to make your roster best for obviously a playoff push, but then, you know, further down the line too, you don't want that one and done either. For sure. You know, you think about, uh, you know, markets like Edmonton, you've got, again, these players in their prime, and there's a lot of pressure to win now, and uh, Toronto's another example. Um, yeah, 26-year-old Connor McDavid, right? Is, is it enough? Yeah. Do they have enough goaltending and depth? And Yeah. You know, when Leon Dreisaitl, who is passing to Connor, is chasing him down on these records, you have to kind of scratch your head and think, you know, 
there it's you know they could do more yeah do you think do you think it is the hardest it's ever been to build a dynasty in in the NHL right now well essentially in this hard cap era yeah. without a doubt because it does have those like small moves or even like a player that you know you just can't resign that's a core piece that you know plays well with each other they have great chemistry love the coach but they need to get paid yeah. you know so you're seeing that overturn that then breaks up what could be that, that window that we're all talking about. So sort of the unfortunate part of the hard cap is, you know, you lose some of that synergy moving forward with that, that group that, you know, tends to like balloon at certain times, that aging curve of like whatever, 24 mm -hmm. to 28. You know, you really want to capture the most value out of that and have, you know, the pieces that will work with that. Because as we were saying too, like who even plays PP1 on, on the New York Rangers, right? Like there's only one puck. They can't all pass. They can't all shoot at the same time. <laughs> Exactly. And expectations, you know, change. It, it's, uh, you know, last year when they surprised everyone, that's a, it's a different thing. So we'll see the exciting playoffs. I want to switch gears and get to some of the questions that have been coming in. Um, first one I have here is, are there certain analytical methods you use to grade the value of future assets, um, i.e., you know, the difference between a 2023 versus a 2024 draft pick or expiring veteran contracts. Kate, do you want to start Yeah, with that I can one? jump on that. Um, we do. If you ask me the ins and outs of it, I'll be honest, couldn't answer. That's our analytics group, and they're awesome. Uh, they do do all these models, internal models, using some external models and things of that nature. But we do, when, when you're thinking, okay, should we give up a, 2020, a 2023 fourth-round pick? a 2024 second round pick, fifth round pick, like there are values assigned to it and we have the values chart. Um, so we do use things like that. Also in terms of prospects, uh, there's, a, there's a lot more data than there used to be, maybe even two, three, four, five years ago. So when you're looking at prospects, we have our development coaches that help, but when you're putting in players into a deal um, or thinking of signing them or not signing them, whether out of college or their junior leagues, um, we, we do have the eye test, but we have numbers now more than ever. So we do, do use that as part of, um, part of the piece to the puzzle. And there's all the models. There are contract value models we use as well, um, which is taking, we do the, I'd say the old school method of using comparables, um, platform year, current year, things like that through the league. But then we also have models that are um, comparing it analytically to what they should be compared to what recent contracts just went to. So there's a lot of different aspects um, that we take into play. Brett, this one might be a good fit for you. When it comes to making you know, a big organizational decision, draft trade, calling up, et cetera, how do you, how do you guys balance all the voices in the room? And, and this uh, question in particular is asking, are the players ever part of that decision making? Um, you know, I mean, I think management makes those decisions. Um, are the players ever part of the decision? I think players make decisions for us, right? If the trade deadline, you know, where, where the team is, the, the, you, that might decide whether you push or not, or if the player's not playing well, that might suggest he needs to go down to the minors. So without actually, you know, vocalizing anything, how they perform will tell you and they'll tell you where, where we're at with as a club. Um, I, I think that, you know, with their process, yeah, there's people, there's a lot of people that weigh in on the decisions on player movement at any time or, you know, sh uh, should we push or should we stay, stay in pat? But um, that's what makes a good decision, right, is when we have a collective 
group of core people that have completely different views, and then we come together and we figure out what's the best, um, the best decision for our organization. Mm -hmm. Megan, I'm going to throw this one to you. It's, sure. uh, it's about LTIR. Oh, no. <laughs> you, had, you had already I mentioned it. I didn't say it. it. I didn't say it. <laughs> recording this. Uh, basically, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, the increased usage of LTIR? Um, you know, it, it's... Well, it's a rule for a reason, a right? Rule. And they're following the rules. I mean, this, I'm not, obviously not on the legal side, so I'm just like analytically looking at it, but clearly there's, you know, they want them to follow the rule for the right purpose, and they've been very vocal about that as well. But I think that's a part of the problem with a hard cap is like you're trying to find edges in certain things. So, you know, using that to make sure that the player is fully healed, fully ready, I mean, there's clearly a really good purpose for it. It's just making sure that there's that, you know, gatekeeping that it's proper for each team and each team has the same, you know, ability to use it and not use it. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is one. That, is that a political way that's of answering? That's a good, that's a good okay. answer. Okay. <laughs> uh, this question is, is specific, um, but it touches on a wider question about, you know, we talked about the trade deadline, teams going all in. And you know, Bruins in particular, they make some of these trades for, you know, Bertuzzi, Orlov, Hathaway. Um, is there a way to quantify going all in? Is there a way to quantify that in terms of the investment, the doubling down, uh, you know, the question of that risk taking that's gone into going that kind of route. Kate, do you want to try to, that's an, I know it's a hard one. Yeah, it is a hard one. I think when you're giving up some of those higher end picks is when you kind of see it. If you're willing to give up a first round this year for a player. I also think sometimes, um, we all read Twitter, right? Sometimes, <laughs> I, I think it was Tampa this year that, or was it last year? It's, sometimes you look at giving up those picks, but that pick might be what you need to win the Stanley Cup. So yes, it looks like you're giving away a first, but it's like, okay, a first or the Stanley Cup, I think we'd all take the Stanley Cup. So sometimes- I think that was a breeze ball. Was it? Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I've seen the last seven days. It was somewhere. Um, so for me, I think when you see some of those higher end picks go prospects, um, that's kind of when you're like, okay, are they making that move? But it's also like, well, that's what they may need to do to, to get to where they want to be. So it is hard to quantify picks because you can't just say, like as I was saying before, a first round pick's worth this because if that's the piece you need to the puzzle, it's actually probably worse, worth um, a different value. So for me, when you see those picks, those prospects go up is when you kind of start to say like, oh, okay, are they, are they trying not to um, whether go on all in or if they're at the fork in the road, maybe they don't want to retool, rebuild, and they're trying to accelerate it the other way, like the Boston Rangers example. Uh, so that's kind of when you start to see it from a, from a high level for me. Uh, absolutely. I, I do want to interject with one of my own questions that I don't think we've touched on yet, which is specifically about puck and player tracking. And uh, it's still pretty evolving in terms of at the team teams figuring out how to generate the most value out of it. Uh, is there anything you guys can share about where you're at with that process and, you know, where, where some of the, you know, potentially most valuable future uh, endeavors are going to be coming from in that respect? Want to take that one? Sure. You guys are rolling. Okay, I'll go for it. <laughs> I'd say it's still, when I think about analytics, um, it's, 
baseball, basketball, hockey, quite frankly. I think there's a lot of growing room. I think it's also, we talked about this before, it's an extremely fluid sport, whether guys are getting off shift changes, short shifts, 30 seconds to 50 to a minute and a half, depending on if you're on a specialty team. And so for me, there's so much fluidity that it is hard to capture. We've had it for a year, year and a half fully now. Um, and we're using it, but I think there's still a lot more from the team perspective that we need to figure out. Um, it does create a lot of like cool graphics, like when you can use the puck and we, you can use it sometimes to show players um, the system. Like, hey, this is actually you, not just looking at the bodies. These are, these are the dots moving, and, and this is where the puck's going. And if you were to do our system, you probably should have done the middle line drape, whatever it is. And so for us, it's using the analytics and the models and the player in puck tracking. I think there's still a good amount of room to go, to be quite honest, but we've only had it for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I would say we're, we're at the tip of the iceberg with it and diving deep, but it takes time. And I think we have that information and we have our own information and we're using it in conjunction and testing it, which is what you're supposed to do, finding trends, things like that. So yes, using it, yes, can go a lot deeper. And yes, I believe most teams will in the, in the coming years as we, um, you have more experience with it, you'll use it more. Maybe even just to maximize like player performance. I know we see in the NBA this like anger over load management, but there's always that thing too. Like, could you play Conor McDavid the full of the game? Not to go back to him, but those kind of questions of like, what's optimal shift length? Where are these plays, players actually skating? Where's the puck going? All of these questions that before you just look at a box score and it's a complete chasm to the other areas. Now you know how they're passing. You know, we have our own tracking data too that we can interface with PPT and like, there's just a lot that can go on in terms of not only player and contract understanding, but also fan engagement, like the whole new world of like sports betting and digital. And, you know, I feel like that's where the convergence of all the capital now injected into this tech side will really help understand player performance and then like the sports science side better. So like talking about injuries earlier, it's yep. like, how do you identify them before they happen? Are they skating differently? Are they moving differently? You know, now with like frame type data, you can understand that their movement patterns, have they changed it? You know, what's their shin to, you know, hip angle, all of those like interesting questions that before someone would just like eyeball it and try to see a player a lot. Now you have that quantified immediately. Yep. I say too, sorry, just jumping kind no, of off yeah. of what you were saying is, I think now you're seeing hockey is, there's a lot more sports science versus just analytics coaching. Now there is sports science to try and help predict some of those things. You do get more data. So I, I know personally we're investing more in that. I think a lot of teams are, but I think that's where there's an opportunity growth for a lot of teams in the league with this new data is the sports science. I don't know if we'll ever get to load management like the NBA. <laughs> you know, that's a hot topic, but I think it is a stepping stone for us to again, evaluate. Um, and, and see what the eye test matches with the numbers, right? You have yeah, a tool. we want to see Jack Hughes skate every night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're not taking about a lot. Um, so it's just another tool, tool in the in the toolbox. Brett, I, I think I'll come to you for the next one. This isn't particularly a question about the Panthers, but across the league, you know, with the growth, obviously Kate touched on the fact that maybe hockey's a little bit behind the other sports in terms of the adoption of analytics. Are you seeing? I know we're seeing growth of it. We're, I know we're seeing adoption of it grow, particularly though the coaches. There's, you know, there's always been this old school hockey coach, uh, you know, image in everybody's mind. Uh, are you seeing that go away? Are you seeing uh, just a lot more receptivity from the coaches as they realize how much it can help them, you know, achieve better results? Well, yeah, I think you're seeing it right now in the NHL. You know, there's so much parity 
right? And uh, information's king. So the, the more information, the more data that we can give our coaches and our, our staff, and I, I think all teams are like this, to, to best do their job, um, it eliminates guessing. You know, we have this, we have uh, amazingly brilliant people um, coming up with whether it be high performance, whether it be analytics, and, you know, giving us information like, hey, listen, maybe you, you take the plane at this time versus that time. And that, the, the, which 10, 15 years ago, would have never thought about, you know. And uh, so I think all teams, all coaches are now receptive to, um, in my opinion, to information and receiving that data um, so they can, you know, do their job to the best of their ability. So I think it is changing. Sure, yeah, and I think it is the assistant coaches too that yeah. are doing more of like the tactical, like, you know, hands-on work trying to figure out whether it's like special teams or goaltending, uh, a lot more engaged with the data than even five years ago for us. Yeah. So, of course, like the head coach, a lot of like leadership and different moving parts, so maybe not as like, you know, on their radar, but I think anyone that's coming up in any sort of system is like, all ears, more analytics, more, you know, using tech to their advantage to just be more efficient. Because hockey groups in general are really small compared to other sports. You know, you talk about the Mets and there's like 100 people in player development. You know, when you go to hockey and there's like three guys that show up, yeah. you know, in tracksuits. And you're like, really? <laughs> in tracksuits? <But>, yeah. <laughs> kind of mumbled that. I want to make sure. <laughs> but I mean, you, and so you want to like have all the staff be as optimal as possible too, to do the best job they can for these, you know, high performance athletes. And I think that's how we grow hockey too, right? Keep pushing forward both on like developing the players, but also making the game more interesting by using data to change how people play. Yeah. Kate, this question of like, you know, the, the, the data scientists and, you know, the, the experienced hockey people, you know, going up a learning curve, everyone's got to go up a learning curve as you start to become a more data-driven organization. How has it worked at you, you know, with the Devils in terms of finding the right systems to collaborate uh, around these things? For me, one of the things that comes to mind as being most important is simply the communication. Uh, there's a, a real specific language to the data that you know you have to become accustomed to, and likewise the coaches they've got hard experience that they learn they've got really good questions. How's that worked in terms of bridging that gap? Yeah, communication's big, and I think scheduling as well, especially as we go into um, the end of the regular season into the playoffs. So for us, it's I think it's also knowing where you're at in hockey. Um, our sports scientist isn't going to go to our head coach, Lindy Ruff, and be like, to your point, we're going to sit out Jack Hughes for four <laughs> games because he looks a little tired. But, <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't be coming back the next day. But what he, what he may do is, hey, X players' numbers look a little off to their baseline. We do testing a certain amount of times. Maybe we do a, sh a shorter sprint practice. So maybe instead of 40 minutes long, it's, it's 20 quick. Or maybe we do two days off this week, um, one day just a skills, or just a come in, stretch, massage day. So that's where it's kind of those conversations. Um, now things always happen. You have a terrible loss. You're not really given the off day. <laughs> There's always those give and takes, but we kind of say it's the 80-20 rule. It's like 80% stick to the plan. 20 is when you can deviate because of unfor like the, the flight might get canceled, right? Now, now you can't travel. You have to. There's all these other operational logistics. So for us, it's our sports scientists coming up with the plan, communicating it, and it's also like the coaches don't know, like, who's tired, who's not. They might have a sense, again, from the eye test, but the numbers are what's really saying it. So if his WAP bike or whatever is off a percent, multiple percentages, multiple days, it's like, 
okay, well, one, he is tired. One, is it an injury that might be coming on? And in the communication to our athlete care group and our coaches, and then it's making the decision together. But it's, it's not like zero to 100. It, it's a, a slower progression, but communication is probably the biggest aspect of it with the scheduling. And Brett, how much have you seen the players start to be interested in the data? You know, are they starting to show more interest for the sake of their own improvement, their own performance? And is that line of communication open, you know, to share that with them? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's a job. These players are professionals and they know, um, you know, they have their own internal metrics they want to hit. And this information is available to them and might give them a better chance to, you know, be a 30 goal scorer to you know, be a plus player, right? So they're, they're in tune to stay in the National League, right? Which is, that's, that's not an easy thing to do, um, have a 10-year career by any stretch. So I think that right now, in my opinion, hockey players are, are smarter than they've ever been. Um, they have resources, um, you know, we have technology now, they're in tune to where the game is going, where it is right now, and they want to be a part of it. So I, I think that a lot of the players have, have sought out, you know, personal plans through uh, high performance, uh, whether it be diets, uh, summer training. Uh, we classify players nowadays as hockey players. They're 12-month athletes, right? They, they don't get out of shape. You know, when, when I was playing, you went to training camp to get into shape. <laughs> you know? So now they, they, they don't get out of shape. They, they're, they're always monitoring where they're at, and I think that it's, uh, it's definitely apparent by the information that's available. Do you want to add anything to either of those Completely few Completely agree, and I also think it's a generation now too, yeah. right? Yeah. So digital first, yeah. on their phones, we send them like links to, you know, different data sets, videos, breakdowns, and like, no problem. On the plane, looking at it, you know, have great discussions, very engaged, want to be better. They really care when it's contract year two right. about their data, so that's kind of fun to watch. Yeah. But um, definitely that progression and, and then working with these other specialized groups, right, whether it's like their own trainers in the, in the summer, off-season trying to get better or work on certain skills, like data to really pinpoint how they can make that change and contribute more the next season. There's so many, like, change agents that I think analytics helps with in hockey that you know, that sub 25 year olds are just eating it up. And the programs too are now so competitive too, like the USA, you know, NTDP program, um, obviously the World Juniors, Hockey Canada, like there's just so much that goes into developing these players at such a young age. The CHL obviously very, you know, have very sophisticated, in some cases they have like more sophistication than some NHL teams, the CHL. Yeah. So it's really cool to like see that not only, you know, aggression early with data, but like the progression through their career now. I think when I was with the Rangers and they first started posting Corsi in the locker room <laughs> after games, you can imagine there are a How lot of goes? gold eyes. <laughs> well, that's the last thing they wanted to see. They've already had a rough enough night. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, now I think, as you're saying, it's a, it's a, it's a new kind of player. They're used, to, they're used to data. They're used to uh, technology. And I think they're seeing, seeing it for the ways that it can help them versus the way that it can strictly be, you know, the, you know, evaluation mode or, you know, feeling judged and, you know, things like that. It, it's a tool, uh, like a lot of tools they have and resources they have to help them be better, uh, which is at the end of the day what we all want. Uh, from the broadcast side, for us, the data is helping us tell stories. You know, for me, one of the exciting things about whether it's the pucker player tracking or, or some of the, the data that we get from Stathletes is just being able to tell stories for me, particularly about some of the more unheralded players in terms of what their value is, 
um, because we want to teach fans and educate fans about what the players are doing on the ice, why they're doing it, and why it's valuable. And, you know, for me, the defensive side, too, is something that is very underappreciated. Uh, and so we're, we're, we're seeing more ways to tell those stories, which is great. Along, a little bit along those lines, at the, at the amateur level, is there still things that we don't have yet? You know, we, we've got, obviously, the best tech possible at the NHL level. Um, maybe start with you, Megan, because this is right it's up tough. your alley. It, it's a cost thing, and as well, people don't realize that hockey is so international, right? You yeah. see these other sports that are, like, in bubbles, like even the NFL and football, right? It just, you get that college group, they can track them in that. Hockey, it's like I go all over the world, you know, Sweden, Finland, um, you know, Eastern Europe. Obviously, there's huge presence and big push, and it's amazing for the game, but it's extremely hard, rank to rank. You're indoors, too. You don't know people's setups. Their video still is not great in some ranks, and, you know, always issues that come up with, like, players wearing white jerseys on white ice with a lot of occlusions. So, you know, there's ways to sort it out, but this certainly has to be uh, a more of a push worldwide to standardize certain things to make it just a lot easier to, you know, understand even prospects, right? You see some, some uh, GMs that are, have links to certain countries and you know why they draft certain people. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to see that playing field a bit, a bit level just so everyone has the same resources and analytics and understanding of these players. Brett, anything to add there? Yeah, I mean, I think this is still where hockey still has an old school component to it, right, where, you know, you need the eye test, you need fantastic scouts, you need uh, people coveraging all over the world to make sure that, you know, um, the player that we get fits our identity. Um, the, even at the college level, they don't have as much as the data as you would expect um, yet, and they're not tracking that. So, you know, there's still... There's still, there's a hole there. There's a gap from the from the youth hockey, from the amateur side to professional is it, side. Is it a question? Sorry to interrupt. Is it a question of standardization, or is it simply that the data is not there at all? Well, I think that right now the data is not there. Yeah. In, in my opinion, it's you know it's, there's there's a gap in, ter in terms of getting that data if you're going to um, you know northern Sweden to get some of the games and mm -hmm. you know you're looking at a guy and you know the scout tells you that this is the guy and you're you know you're looking at another player uh, place and you've got 15 pages of information and you know, you've got to fly over there and hopefully don't get stuck in a snowstorm and and then he's got to pass the eye test right so yeah. um i think that there's there is a gap and i think that we're getting better in trying and trying to bridge it but um there still is a gap okay yeah, I'd probably re reiterate what you guys both said. I think sometimes it's really hard. You're comparing apples to oranges. Um, and so for us, it's that's where, though, you can get a diamond in the rough. We had Jesper Bratt in the sixth round for us, personally, and that's where there probably wasn't as much data in the Swedish Junior B League mm -hmm. versus in the KHL, if there's a player playing there, or in the CHL, things of that nature. So sometimes, as Brett was saying, it's hard when there's so much good on this player and there's only some on this player. It's not bad, it's not good, it's just not there. And so that's where you really do have to rely on the scouts and, and things of that nature. So I, I think it's getting to a better place, but some of those other regions, it, there isn't data. Um, and if it is, it's, okay, how reliable is it? Because it's probably one or two years versus... 10, 12 years and things like that. I mean, sometimes you even look and I'm like, where's the time on ice? Mm -hmm. uh, th things as simple as that. So yeah. uh, again, progressing, but it is hard to compare an amateur scouting, probably the hardest. Um, it's a lot of apples to oranges and then trying to, trying to make it as apples to apples as possible. 
This is kind of related to one of the questions uh, coming up here, but a little bit different. And maybe for you, Brett, is there, a, is there a difference in the decision parameters uh, that go into drafting a first, second round player and a later round player? You know, is it a different set of decision-making priorities? You know, in, in other words, for a first-round player, it's kind of like, hey, we know a lot about him. We, we, we know he's got a proven track record. Uh, we've got a lot of data. Sixth-rounder, you know, seventh-rounder, it's kind of like, well, he's a great athlete. Uh, he, you know, is, is, there some, is there some different way you approach these things? Well, I think, you know, again, you, you have your recipe of what you're looking for and, and what you want your prospects to be in, you know, if you're a player that's coming from Europe, you're going to have to assess this project has to be complete by the time he's 21. You know, if it's a player that's going to college, that project now gets kicked till he's 24, right? So the, the ages are different. So you, 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 you do have, a, a, it is weighted a little bit, but I would say that the, the core values of trying to identify the best player in the needs that you have, the, the spots, the shortages that you, you need to fill is still king. Um, but there is, there is different equations that go into uh, you know, what a, a fourth round goalie might be worth as opposed to a seventh round goalie, right? So um, where is that player at? What's the track record? So there, there is a lot of uh, moving targets and I would say that uh, your, your amateur staff uh, it's, it's actually pretty fun to listen to them battle for the guys, uh, but it's, um, you know, going through that process and, and they, you know, they speak their, their piece and then you have the analytical people come in and speak their piece and, and then obviously everyone comes to a conclusion on this is what makes us a better club, so. I still remember when I was drafted by the Rangers, I could see, I was up in, in the crowd, I could see down that the, the Rangers you know, draft table, one of the scouts, uh, you know, arguing on, on my behalf yeah. right before I was picked. They, yeah. they get very passionate at, oh, yeah. well, and they, they put blood, sweat, and tears, and it's, it's awesome to see. Yeah. Kate, did you want to add anything on that question? Yeah, I was just going to say, kind of similarly, you, you make your draft board, and people have different strategies, whether you're drafting for best available player or skill or size or whatever it is, is your GM's vision. Uh, for us, too, I think one of the other things, when you get into the later rounds, it ends up sometimes being positionally. Like, you're not going to have four picks all be centers. You're like, okay, we need to share the love a little bit. Um, some, some teams want to take goalies high. Some just want one goalie in a draft because the volatility of it. So I think sometimes positions do play a part in it. Um, some team, for us, it's, it's not usually at the higher end of the draft, but you, you do think about that. Um, some teams think about their current team, some teams don't. It might just be best available player versus some might say you have two strong centers, maybe let's go for a D. So every team has different strategies on how they do it, but I do think position at a point in the draft plays, plays a part. Did you have anything you wanted to add on that last question? I mean, question? it's very easy to look back and criticize, right, that five-year redrafting. I think it's really hard to do that prediction in that moment. And even like that idea of, you know, what's that ceiling for the player? Because you may know, okay, this player has these attributes and this is what they're doing analytically and this is where I think they'll go. But then you see those players that end up exceeding expectations and obviously that's where a lot of the value is found, especially if you can draft them later, like Brad, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's amazing. So the more of those hits you can get, the more you have that, you know, in that RFA cheap group that will just help propel you forward. So 
it's quite the science, but also art. And obviously, scouting plays a huge part in like narrowing that down after the analytics happen. Yeah. And I think a lot of people forget too that in, in hockey we're drafting players younger than in the other sports. Yes. So it, yeah. it really Can you imagine is... at 17 being like, what am I going to be in five years? Like, I have no idea. Yeah. Like, we're, yeah. We're, yeah, it's a projection on 17, 18 yeah. year olds. Like, oh my yeah. God, it's, it's wild. But the scouts, like, they work so hard and they're so good at what they do. For sure. Well, that just about does it for our, for our panel. And uh, thanks to each of you for joining us. And thanks to all of you for joining us as well.